last week our um, summer-long series through the book of Ephesians, and over the next couple of weeks, uh, I'm going to spend some time in and around Deuteronomy chapter uh, 6, and this morning what I want to look at is, uh, and the title of the message this morning is Knowing and Worshiping God. Knowing and Worshiping God. We, um, by God's grace, can know God uh, because He's revealed Himself to us uh, first through creation, general revelation. We can look at God's creation and we can tell that uh, from the creation uh, that there is a creator. We can look at the beauty of creation and say that that creator is good. And, uh, and even better than that, we can know God specifically. We can know uh, Christ Jesus because God's revealed himself ultimately to us through his word. And, uh, and so because of that, uh, we can worship Him, we can walk with Him, and as we're going to look at this morning, uh, we can also, and are obligated by God, to teach our children how to walk with Him as well. And so we're going to look at Deuteronomy chapter 6 this morning, and, and really over the next three weeks, this week included, uh, the messages that we're going to work through are going to kind of be uh, around this same theme, is, is more about how we walk with Him as households of God. And so at Deuteronomy chapter 6. We're going to look at verses 4 through 9, and I'm going to pray, and then we will work through this together. Moses, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he wrote these words to the Israelites, and the spiritual principles of these still apply to us many, many years later, starting with verse 4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. Verse 8. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorpost of your house and on your gates. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you, God, that Moses could have given these instructions to the Israelites many years ago, and we still have them here. And God, these words contain how to walk with you. They, and, it's, and it's tangible for us, God. It's, it's, not, it's not something that's outside of our grasp. It's something that you've made very earthy for us, God. Lord, you've, you've given us handles on how, by the power of your Spirit, we can know you, we can worship you, we can walk with you. And so this morning, would you help us as we look at the Scripture? Would you humble us by your Spirit? so that we can apply what we see here in this text. And I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. One commentator, a theologian, has said that the whole book of Deuteronomy is a commentary on this phrase that we see here in this passage, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. The whole book of Deuteronomy is, is Moses giving commentary to these instructions. And so as a church body, if we're a people that are saying we, by God's grace, are going to love the Lord your God with all 
the heart, with all the soul, with all the might, then Deuteronomy is a book that we want to pay particular attention to. And this morning, we want to give particular attention to verses 4 through 9. And, and we see here that this love here, this love that, that Moses writes about, that, that uh, God has given to Moses to communicate to his people, this love is a response. It's a response. It's, it's a response to the God who, who sought and who saved the Israelites out of Egyptian slavery. That's where we are uh, in, in the story here. We've seen Moses, God through Moses, deliver the Israelites out of Egyptian slavery. And now he's saying, this is how free people live. This is how free people live. Right? This love here is a, is, is a response to God's kindness to them. It's, it's a natural response of being loved first by God. And, and when we read about the, the historical account of the Exodus, and when we read about God's faithfulness to the Israelites in the Old Testament, as Christians living today, we need to see that God, through His Word, is preaching an even bigger story than the Exodus to us. Sally Lloyd-Jones in her children's book, we read it to your kids a lot of times when they're in the back in our children's ministry, in her children's book, The Jesus Storybook Bible. If you don't have that, I would encourage you, uh, even if you don't have kids, to get it and, and read it. But she, she puts it this way. She says, some people think that the Bible is a book of rules telling you what you should and shouldn't do. The Bible certainly does have some rules in it. They show you how life works best, but the Bible isn't mainly about you and what you should be doing. It's about God and what He's done. The Bible is most of all a story. It's a love story about a brave prince who leaves his palace, his throne, everything to rescue the one he loves. It's like the most wonderful of fairy tales that has come true in real life. You see, the best thing about this story is it's true. I love those words because they remind children and, and adults alike, that, that all these stories in Scripture, when we read stories like the Exodus and God's faithfulness in delivering the Israelites out of Egyptian slavery, they're telling us an even greater story. They're telling us a story about how God's rescued us from the slavery of sin. Right? He sought us out. He's redeemed us through the blood of Christ Jesus. He's brought us into His fold. Again, we're not orphans any longer. We're sons. We're daughters of the Most High King. Sought us in Christ Jesus. He saved us by the power of the Holy Spirit. So our love for Him, when we're looking at a passage that talks about loving the Lord our God with, with all of our heart, with all of our soul, with all of our might, what we're seeing is our love, much like the love of the Israelites, is a response to, to God in Christ Jesus loving us first. Right? It's not us efforting to try to win the affections of some cold, hard, distant God. It's us responding to this love that we've experienced, fully embraced by our God who's holy because of Christ Jesus by the power of the Holy Spirit. So our love of God is, is the normative response to being loved by God. And if you're taking notes, let's work through this passage together. You want to jot this down. There's no other God, and He alone is worthy of our whole person devotion. There's no other God, and He alone is worthy of our whole person devotion. Right? Verse 4 and 5, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you love the Lord your God with all your heart, 
with all your soul, and with all your might. Coming out of a, a pluralistic society, the Israelites, they knew the pitfalls of idolatry. They knew the pitfalls of idolatry. They knew the enslaving nature of false gods. In fact, idolatry, it, it not only enslaves the soul, but it led to the development of societies that also enslaved people. That's, where, that's, that's the product of idolatries. Not only does it enslave the soul, but it also leads to the development of societies that enslave people. Case in point, Egypt with the Israelites. Right? Christianity, on the other hand, brings liberty. Christianity brings liberty. Idolatry leads to enslavement. Christianity brings liberty. And in our text this morning, we, along with the Israelites, many, many years ago were reminded that there are no gods like Yahweh, that there's no God but Yahweh, this God who, who delivers, right? this God who is unchanging, this God who is just and by no means clears the guilty. This God who provides and sustains. This God who's one and yet three co-equal, co-eternal persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. This God, Yahweh, that delivers the Israelites out of Egyptian slavery, that delivers us even in a more significant way from the slavery of sin, is worthy of body and soul worship. And the question is, what does allegiance and devotion, what does body, soul, worship look like to Yahweh? What does it look like? Although people knew what allegiance looked like to God before, what I'm going to refer to as the moral law, which is the Ten Commandments, if you will, we see God summarize how His people were to worship Him through those Ten Commandments. And, And the reason I bring up the Ten Commandments is because of the phrase, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might. Jesus used that phrase to summarize the first four commandments of the Ten Commandments. And Christians throughout church history have always understood the Ten Commandments to be divided in in what's called two tables. The first table deals with our relationship and worship to God. And then the back six commandments deal with how our worship of God uh, uh, turns into love for one another. If you look with me in, in Mark Chapter 12, verses 28 through 31, we see Jesus kind of summarize these two tables of the law here. He says, it says here, And one of the scribes came up and heard them disputing with one another, and seeing that he answered them well, asked him, Which commandment is the most important of all? Okay, that's the question on the table. What's the most important commandment ever? Jesus said this, the most important is, and he goes and he quotes Deuteronomy 6, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one, and you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, with all your strength. And he goes on, verse 31, to summarize the back six of the commandments. And the second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. So this is significant for us, Deuteronomy chapter 6, bringing it together with the Ten Commandments, looking here at Mark, really does help us bring into focus what devotion to God, responding to the love of God, the love that He has for us in Christ Jesus, what that looks like, what that smells like, what it feels like when we touch it. So the question is, if he summarized, if, if devotion to God... It's summarized in these first four commandments. We need to briefly look at those. And I just encourage you, thumb over with me to Exodus chapter 20. I'm going to just 
look at the, uh, the first 11 verses here. I'm going to read them and, and just make some comments here because Moses, the Israelites, by the time they're hearing what we're working through in Deuteronomy, they already, kinda, they already have this. They've already been given um, the Ten Commandments by Moses where he summarizes what walking with God looks like. And, and he, says, he says here, God spoke all these words saying, I'm the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall, make for yourself, you shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow to them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children of the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. Commandment three. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. And then commandment four, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days shall you labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work. You or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in six days the Lord made heaven and earth the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. And this is a prescription for us in Scripture to worship only our triune God and to worship Him in a particular way. And the Israelites would have known this. And in these first four commandments, we see that the Lord alone should be the singular focus of his people. The Lord alone should be the singular focus of his people. We live in a world where, where things, people, philosophies try to take us captive, but we're, as God's people, to strain toward Christ Jesus, to press on toward Christ Jesus. We also see in the second commandment that we worship God how he prescribes. So not only do we worship God alone, but we worship God in a way that is distinct for his people to worship him. We don't make up how we worship God. God has told us how we worship him. We don't define worship for him. We don't go and set up images and say that this represents God. We're not devoted to images. We're not devoted to certain customs that are foreign to Scripture. The second commandment about making carved images isn't um, the first commandment restated. It's not that Moses is just making the same point twice. It's a different commandment. The first commandment says we worship only God. The second commandment says we worship him how he tells us, how he tells us. Let me further illustrate this using another passage in Deuteronomy. Right here, Deuteronomy chapter 12, the first four verses. These are the statutes he's given us to the Israelites here in rules that you shall be careful to do in the land that the Lord, the God of your fathers has given you to possess all the days that you live on the earth. And get this, you shall surely destroy all the places where the nations whom you shall dispossess served their gods on the high mountains and on the hills and under every green tree. And then get this, you shall tear down their altars and dash in pieces their pillars and burn their ashram with fire. You shall chop down the carved images of their gods and destroy their name out of that place. And then get this, you shall not worship the Lord your God in that way. So not only are we to worship only Yahweh, but we're not to adopt the practices of pagan worshipers. We're not to adapt, uh, adopt the practices of an unbelieving culture and say we're going to worship God with their methods. 
Does that make sense? God has prescribed that we worship him alone, and God has prescribed the way in which we worship. And so we see that the Israelites were to worship God, but not allowed to worship. uh, They were called to worship God, but not allowed to worship God in the way that pagan worshipers worshipped their false gods. Now, why is worship important? Why is the way in which we worship important? How we worship is important because of who we worship. Our God is holy, holy, holy. That's who our God is, holy, holy, holy. And, And our worship then, because we serve a God who's holy, 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 deserves a distinct type of worship. And I won't read this for time's sake, but if you were to look, and I would encourage you to do this at some point today, look at Isaiah chapter 6, right? The first several verses during the year that King Uzziah died, uh, the prophet Isaiah, he has this vision of the Lord, right? And this, this vision of the Lord was filled with the glory of God and his, his robes, the train of his robes filled the temple. And, and in this, this vision that he has, he sees these unfallen angelic creatures surrounding God, saying, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. The whole earth is filled with its glory. These are are angelic, unfallen creatures. There's no sin in them. And if you read the passage, you see that they had to cover their eyes. They couldn't even look at the glory of God. They had to cover their eyes. We serve a God who's holy. He's holy. This is, this is a God who, who initiates and, and accomplishes the purification of sinful man because it's the only way that we as sinful people can be in his presence. And when we speak his name, we're to do so with that context in mind, which is the third, the, which, which leads us to the the fourth commandment here. So, the, so we should worship only God. He's the only true God. Secondly, we worship how he prescribes. Third, his name is holy, holy, holy. And fourth, we, we, we see this regular rhythm of one day every seven days that's solely devoted to, to worshipful rest. The Sabbath is a creation ordinance. It's what theologians call a creation ordinance. That means that Jesus didn't abolish it in the New Testament. It's good, just as God called marriage another creation ordinance good. In the Old Testament days, the Sabbath was on Saturday when God rested after he had created the world so that he could demonstrate a pattern for his people. He didn't rest because he was tired. He did so to demonstrate a pattern for his people to model that would be for their physical and their eternal good. Nothing is more exhausted than seven days that look the same. That's slavery. That's slavery, day in and day out work promotes the, us forgetting God. That's as old as the time of Pharaoh who, who had the Israelites make more bricks so they couldn't focus on their devotion to the Lord. Jesus' resurrection marked the day of new creation, right? If, if the sixth day, if the Sabbath was the the, the marker that God called his creation good and he rested on the Sabbath and, and that was this pattern the, uh, that he established for us. Jesus, uh, through his resurrection, inaugurated new creation when he bodily and eternally rose from the dead. 
Right? When he bodily and eternally rose from the dead, the world as we know it changed forever. A dead man doesn't come back to life forever and the world stay the same, right? That's 1 Corinthians 15 stuff. If Christ isn't resurrected from the dead, then what in the world are we doing here? The world has changed because God, who's true, because Jesus, who's truly man and truly God, took our sin upon himself, endured the wrath of God, went in the tomb, left our sins in the tomb, and came out. He came out. The world's forever changed because of that. Things don't stay the same. And so what did Christians do in honor of that? Because it symbolizes a passing away of Judaism, where they worshipped on the seventh day. And it marked the day called the Lord's Day which is a, symbolizes new creation. The early church and, and, and Christians all throughout church history began to worship on the Lord's Day, the day that God in Christ made, began to make things new through his resurrection. Judaism is null and void, and it, it, and it goes away with its Saturday commitments. Right? The Christian Sabbath is on the day of Jesus' resurrection. It's on Sunday. And, and with it came a pattern of gathering as God's church, resting from labor, and delighting in God together to celebrate new life in Christ. That's what we do each and every time we come here as God's gathered church. Now, let's, let's keep pressing into this statement. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, might. Right? Waiting through the first four commandments, it gives us some handles on how we do this, but God uses Moses to give some further handles surrounding this commandment to worship the Lord. And, and, and in this, we'll see how this even extends to, to households of God, individual households of God. All right, so means by which we love the Lord our God. First, we see that uh, Moses commends meditation. This is going to get very specific. He commends meditation. In other words, eat the word. Eat the word of God. These words I command you till today shall be on your heart, shall be on your heart. The aim here is the heart. Right? Loving the Lord comes not from lip service, but from a heart whose affections are set on Jesus. So believer, is your relationship with God, is it warm? Is it warm? Could devotion describe your heart posture before God? Is, is your pleasure in Him? Do you delight in Him even this morning as we worship Him together? Are you presently right now as you're hearing the preaching of the Word, are you delighting in God? Has your heart been captivated by Him? Right. What comes out of our hearts affects our behavior. We act according to what we truly believe. And, and we see here that there's this expectation that the words of God are to be on the heart of his people. Be on the heart of his people. We're, we're to be a people that digest God's word. We're to be a people that internalize God's word, that eat his word. And, and we see this type of language, this eating the word. We see this in scripture. Ezekiel chapter 3, the first three verses says, and he said to me, son of man, eat whatever you find here. Eat the scroll and go and speak to the house of Israel. So I opened my mouth and he gave me the scroll to eat. 
And he said to me, son of man, feed your belly with this scroll that I give you and fill your stomach with it. Then I ate it and it was in my mouth as sweet as honey. Or if you were to flip over to Jeremiah chapter 15, verse 16, you see Jeremiah says, your words were found and I ate them. And your words became to me a joy and the delight of my heart. For I called, for I'm called by your name, O Lord God of hosts. Or Revelation chapter 10, verses 9 and 10, John documents this. I went to the angel and told him to give me the little scroll, and he said to me, take and eat it. It will make your stomach bitter, but in your mouth it will be as sweet as honey. And I took the little scroll from the hand of the angel and ate it. It was as sweet as honey in my mouth, but when I eat it, eaten it, it made my stomach bitter. We are to be a people that feast on the word. I didn't, and if that's not a regular rhythm in your life, you need to evaluate the condition of your heart. Because if we're not digesting the word, if we're not eating the word, what is in your heart, I assure you, is not the word. It's not the word. Right? We need to see the word of God as our very food. We need to internalize his word and we need to obey what it says so we can draw near to God and be conformed more in the image of Christ. The words used to describe the word indicate for us just how powerful the word of God is. We see, we see the language in those passages I just read. We see that it fills the belly. We see that it has the power to make the stomach bitter. We see that it's as sweet as honey. We see that its words are our joy, that it's the delight of our heart. God tells us in his word to eat his words. I had a friend growing up named Shatan. And he immigrated from India to southern Georgia. And I can't think of a whole lot, I can't think of a lot of things that are, would provide more culture shock than someone immigrating from India to southern Georgia. And, uh, and he and I became best friends growing up. And, um, and I hated eating with him. Hated eating with him. He'd invite me over to his house. I hated eating at his house with him. He'd take me to a restaurant. We'd go to a restaurant together. I hated eating. The reason why I hated eating with him is because it took us like three hours. And the reason it took us three hours is because Shaitan was convinced, and I have since done some research, and somehow there's, there are scientific journals that back this up. And, uh, but the more, and I may say it, and you're like, of course, you dummy, this is better for you this way. But Shaitan chewed his food 30 times. Every bite. Every bite, chewed his food 30 times. It was so annoying. And, um, and so I would sit there, and I'm done with my meal in 20, 30 minutes, and we still got like two hours to go because every bite, 30 times. His family, every bite, 30 times. And, uh, and I would push back on that, and he would say, Joey, uh, it's better for your blood and for your digestion to chew 30 times before you swallow. And, uh, and now, looking back on that, I can't. Think of that story of Shaitan chewing 30 times without thinking about biblical meditation, right? Being slow in our working through the Scripture, making sure that we get every nutritional value we can, po we can possibly gain from eating the words of God, right? If slow chewing of our physical food is better for your blood and for your digestive system. Maybe the Lord is teaching us that spiritual food, like the Word, slowly digested, is better for us too. Eat the Word. Eat the Word. George Swinnick, is in, uh, he was a pastor in the 1800s, he, he gave this definition for meditation. He says, it's a serious applying of the mind 
to some sacred subject till the affections be warmed and quickened and the resolution heightened and strengthened against what is evil and for that which is good. And we meditate on Scripture so that, first and foremost, we can draw near to God. We meditate on Scripture so that our affections for God can be warmed. We meditate on Scripture so that we can flee sin and love righteousness. So eat the Word. Eat the Word. And also, if, as we keep moving through this text together, also raise your kids to know and worship God. Raise your kids to know and worship God. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. Earlier in Deuteronomy chapter 4, verse 9, it says, Only take care and keep your soul diligently, lest you forget the things that your eyes have seen, lest you, again, forget that you've been rescued out of slavery, right? lest they depart from your heart all the days of your life. Make them known to your children and to your children's children. And so for those of, of you that, that, that don't have children and maybe you're in a, a season of life where you have grandchildren, make it known to your children's children. If you're a parent, if you're a grandparent, if you're a part of this local church and you're committing to come alongside of parents to help them raise kids in the Lord, but if you're a parent, it's your responsibility to raise your kids to know and worship God. It's, it's your job as a parent to raise your kids so that they know that they're not autonomous, that they're created in the image of God, and, and they're called to be a part of His body, the local church. And to do this, there needs to uh, be an establishment of, of regular rhythms of worship in the home. To do this, there needs to be a, a commitment to corporate worship. That needs to be a priority of your home coming each and every Lord's Day. It's your responsibility as a parent to commit to this. It's your responsibility to know God. It's your responsibility to teach your children to know God as you worship together in the context of your local church. Notice the words here. Teach the children diligently. Talk with them. And then get this. When you sit, walk, lie down, rise. In other words, all the time. All the time, right? The faithfulness of God and how He loves us and how He pursues us in Christ Jesus should be regular conversation. It should be regular conversation in the home. Right? Christian parents should be teaching their children that all of Christ is for all of life. Right? All of Christ is for all of life. There's no area of life that's off limits to the lordship of Jesus. Not one single area. Every square inch of absolutely everything, Jesus said is mine. It's mine. And he has authority in heaven. He has authority on earth. He has authority under the earth. All of Christ for all of life. He's Lord of their little bodies. He's Lord over them eating and drinking and playing and sleeping. He's Lord over the dishes being cleaned and the garbage being taken out and the grass being mowed and the garden being tended to. He's Lord over their studies in mathematics and grammar and science. He's Lord over their friendships. Right? Your 
teaching your kids and you're reminding your spouse that Jesus is relevant to every aspect of life. The lordship of Jesus extends to every part of our lives, every nook and cranny on the earth. And, And parents that fail to do this on their very best days are teaching their children that Jesus is irrelevant. On their very best days, teaching that Jesus is irrelevant. An add-on, or someone we speak to before we eat, or someone that we worship when our schedules allow, or someone that we worship when we don't have soccer practice. The gospel has to permeate your home. The gospel has to permeate your home. And I want to give just three quick practical ways that we nurture our children in the faith. And again, if you're in retirement age or if you're in a stage of life where you don't have children, don't tune out because these three ways are are ways that you can worship throughout your week as well. The first is this, corporate worship. Make it a priority in your home. Make it a, it can be difficult to get here on times. You may drag the kids kicking and screaming. It's your liturgy. It's your liturgy to bring them each and every Lord's Day. This is what it means, fill in the blank with your last name. This is what it means to be a Tomlinson. We worship the Lord on the Lord's Day. All right, family worship. Establish regular rhythms of family worship Monday through Saturday. And it doesn't have to be complicated. It's reading the word, pray, and sing. Brain and I established that well before we had children, and when we got to the sing part and it was a cappella, it was super awkward. It was super awkward. But press in, press through that awkwardness. Establish a rhythm in your home where you read the Word, where you pray the Word, where you sing the Word of God. I can't help but to think of Joshua's declaration as, for me and my house we serve the Lord. Right In this culture that we live in, where the exclusive claims of Christianity are offensive. To say that Jesus is Lord is offensive in and of itself. We primarily expand the, God, we primarily expand the kingdom of God through the heralding of the gospel in our home, through n- normal, regular rhythms, teaching our kids that it is relevant to their lives. And then third, pay attention. Pay attention. Corporate worship, make it a priority. Second, family worship, read, pray, and sing. What we do in my house on family worship lasts five to seven minutes. Three, pay attention because God seeps into everything. You're on a walk, and who made these trees? There's a storm outside. Who who brought this storm in, and who's going to send this storm packing? And when you eat, who, who really provided this food? Mom or dad might have cooked this food, but who, who, who provides this food? Pay attention to those moments. And then finally, if you're taking notes, cultivate a word-centered home. And in some ways, we've, we've established that already. But Moses says in verses 8 and 9, Bind them as a sign on your hand, and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorpost of your house and on your gates. After Moses gave these instructions to the Israelites, they, they began, if you know anything about church history there, they began to take this literally. Right? And the frontlets, frontlets and the, the doorposts thing, and mostly, I think, because copies of Scripture weren't, wasn't like they were plentiful. It was orally transmitted. The, but these families, they were writing them down. Right? Today we have printed copies of the Scripture, but the, the spiritual principle here. It still applies. We're, we're to cultivate a word-centered home. 
And again, that means you need to be daily reading the word as a family. In a word-centered home, the, the members of the household, this is the environment in which you nurture if you're committed to be a committed to a word-centered home. In a word-centered home, the members of the household, they come face-to-face with Christ every day. How glorious is that? Come to face-to-face with Christ every day. In a word-centered home, you find doers of the word, not just hearers of the word. In a word-centered home, you'll find safety in confessing sin. In a word-centered home, sin's met with the light of the gospel. In a word-centered home, there's safety and time for every individual in the home to be sanctified by God because the home understands that God sanctifies on his timetable. Now, a word-centered home is a hospitable home. It's warm, and it's devoted to the good of other people. To write the word on the doorposts, it signified a way of life that was oriented toward God in the home. The word on the gate served as a reminder as the Israelites entered and left. It served as a reminder of who they belonged to. They weren't enslaved. They they were free men. They were free women. They were free children. Believer, if you're in Christ, you're free. You're free. You're, You're not in bondage anymore. Free people no longer behave as if they're enslaved. The the free life, the good life, is to walk before the face of God with your family in the context of the local church, looking forward to that day when Christ returns and finally, definitively, makes all things new. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Heavenly Father, we thank you for another week in your word together as your church. And God, we are humbled that you love us and that, Lord, we're not doing things in our life to increase your love. You can't love us anymore, and your love for us doesn't diminish because you're unchangeable. And our salvation is grounded in Christ who's stable. Lord, in the book of Hebrews, it says that that we're to be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken. That's your kingdom. And our response to that, the way that we respond to that, is through reverence and awe. So Lord, help us live in light of people who are loved. Give us grace to teach our kids that they're loved as well. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. This is the portion of our service where we, um, we end each Lord's Day by coming to the table.